The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. Right, uh, my name is Bhante Bodhidharma. I guess the people who've been watching these talks uh, by the Buddhist Society of Victoria know me by now. We do take turns to give talks um, every Sunday. And today um, I will be continuing to talk about sila. So I'm having a sila series. We first talked about sila in general, uh, virtue in general, and then about the first precept. And today the second precept is on the program. So let's carry on exploring what makes us truly human. What are the instructions of the Buddha to live a virtuous, harmless, and a happy life? Which basically means staying afloat, staying carried by our good conduct and supported by it. So it's like this big ocean, uh, that simile that I used in the first um, talk, that we are all swimming in. So just make sure we don't sink. So we keep our heads above water. But when we are doing that, when we are keeping our sila, when we are a virtuous person, when we are engaging in um, wholesome habits, that is what prepares and primes our minds for deep meditation. Because if there isn't any happiness, it's very, very hard to meditate. If there isn't a pure mind, if we can't drop things, if we can't unburden ourselves from things to go into meditation, it is very, very difficult. And then without meditation, without stillness, without calm, without clarity, we won't have the penetrative wisdom that is required to see things as they really are, as the Buddha taught. So we're trying to have a calm, and clear mind. So last time we spoke about the first precept. Basically all the precepts are about harmlessness. But last time we talked about not harming, not hurting, or even killing living beings. But we always talk about the positive aspects as well, because if we develop the positive aspects, they automatically replace the negative aspects that might be there. So that means to protect life, to even save life. So if there is any animal or whatever that um, is in a difficult situation and we can actually help it, we can care for it, then we're doing the opposite. So now we're again cultivating harmlessness. Um, oh, hang on, but there was one more thing I wanted to mention. So what we are creating with that is a safety, a refuge and an oasis. So we are creating a place where we can feel at ease and where we can feel at home. So now we carry on with harmlessness, but it goes into the domain of not just the person or the living being, but it goes into the domain of what belongs 
to a living being. So the, the, the Buddha was teaching that when we have this idea of a self, there is always also this idea of something belonging to a self. So if there wouldn't be things belonging to a self, there wouldn't be a self. If there wouldn't be a self, there wouldn't be things belonging to a self. So we are making sure that we are respecting that relationship that is there. And basically the second precept means not to steal. That's the easiest way to explain it. But if you go in a bit more detail and look at the words adinadana, it actually means not taking what is not given. That is a bit more removed from stealing. So if something isn't freely offered, we don't just go and help ourselves. So as monastics, this rule is, is quite strict for us. So we, um, you know, we don't handle money and all these things anyway. But even with food, we can't just, you know, go to the fridge and help ourselves or whatever. Or um, if there is some food around or even other things, we don't just kind of help ourselves. We always get the things offered into our hands so that we can make sure the things that we are using, the things that we are eating, that they have been all given freely to us. So in terms of stealing, of course, don't go and rob banks or things like that. I think that's kind of, kind of obvious. But when we are trying, uh, yeah, well, obvious, yeah, people still do it. Of course, they will have their reasons. But please do reflect deeply about the belongings of other people. Please think about, you know, that these that money or these goods, they belong to someone. And we're depriving those other beings of those things. But now stealing can also happen in a workplace. It can happen with our friends. It can happen in our family. And that's usually not like the big time stealing, but it's still, you know, it's kind of taking things that weren't freely offered, taking things that are not really ours. And if that happens, please make sure that if you realize it, you give it back. And uh, of course, the intention here is also very important. So if we take something and we consider it offered or we didn't know it belonged to someone else, then that is not really stealing because we don't have the intention of stealing it. But then there is lots of other areas that we can go into, like avoiding tax, avoiding customs, um, avoiding fees. Um, we can be inflating insurance claims. Just, you know, add a little bit more, even though it wasn't really stolen <laughs> or it kind of happened in a different way and we don't really kind of say the truth there. Um, another thing these days, copyrighted material. So let's try and be very um, mindful with copyrighted material. And also, especially if we are using things, if we can ask um, a the person that has the copyright or the organization that has it and to make sure that we are not making profit with some something that someone else has created. So of course there is lots of gray areas that we have to look into. So if we are sharing these things freely, even on YouTube sometimes, um, if you do it for teaching purposes and if you follow certain rules, it's still okay. But I think we all, if we are not being too desensitized already, we kind of feel when we are going into those kind of darker waters and, and doing things that are not quite right in that area. Then of course it also entails exploitation or making excessive profits. 
So uh, I'm quite happy that we are part of a non not or not-for-profit organization, so that gain is not really something that is trying to be generated. I do understand there is business models out there and people have to, um, you know, have livelihoods and all that. But again, there, please think about the workers you have, if you have a business, and the people you are serving, so that there is a balance you can strike, so that it isn't um, done in a way where you exploit or deprive people of things. Now, another thing that might happen is that you're borrowing things. And then, um, you know, you borrow it and it's been for a long time or whatever and you're like, oh, well, they, they're not missing that thing anymore. And you kind of just keep it. So even though you've borrowed it in the beginning, you didn't have the intention to steal it. But then there comes that point where you're crossing a threshold of actually taking something which hasn't been given freely. So, um, yeah, who knows? Maybe the other person is not really looking for it, but then you can have a conversation and they might actually offer it and then you can keep, um, keep, keep that, uh, that thing. Another thing is also um, I'm living in a community here and you're living in a family or in a kind of unit or you're living in a society where we share things where we share belongings that belong to that group or that belong to the whole country or whatever it might be. So let's take care of that as well. Take care of the things and take care of the properties that don't belong to us, that belong to a bigger community. So for example, um, you know, we have a few cars at, uh, at our other monastery in Western Australia. And if you drive your own car, you usually take care of it very, very well. You know, you, you clean it, you make sure it's fixed in the right way and all that. If it's not your car, the story might be slightly different. So just um, reflect on that and see if you can put in a little bit more effort, effort when you are reflecting. It belongs to other people that also want to use it and that also want to have it in a, in a state um, where, yeah, where it's still still nice. Or, you know, cleaning even, <laughs> cleaning the toilets, cleaning the rooms that you're um, using or together, cleaning up after yourself is also kind of not stealing. But for me, if you think about this, it uh, kind of goes into the same category. And what I'm trying, as you have maybe seen during the last other talks, is to move from the negative behavior that we're trying to avoid into the positive behaviors that kind of have a similar flavor and that make sure we don't fall into those um, things in the first place. So it also means respecting property. It also means respecting boundaries. So a person might have a certain boundary. And uh, if we're not careful, we can cross these boundaries. We can cross agreements. We can cross rules. We can cross laws um, that a whole community has agreed upon. And uh, that is not really a good thing. Of course, there are certain laws and agreements that are not done in the right way. And then it's okay to question these things, to have discussions about it. But um, don't just overrule it. Um, think of all the members that are concerned. Think of all the members that live in that family, live in that community, or live in that country or whatever it might be. To find a consensus where everyone is happy with what is being done and no one feels exploited. And then, of course, that 
counts for the land as well. We have this funny idea that land belongs to us and that resources belong to us and that in our kind of world you can buy a piece of land and then, well, do with it whatever you want. <laughs> so um, please be, be careful and think twice about it as well. The land is almost like another being like another entity and um, that's very nice in Australia with the indigenous people that they take care of the land so they don't see themselves as owners of the land that much they see themselves as the custodian of the land so it is a relationship there and then of course we also make sure we don't steal time and we don't steal uh, we don't steal space so um we don't cut off people when we're talking to each other. We give people space. We don't use up their time too much. Okay, so that's a bit of a kind of an overview of what the second precept might mean. So please remember, we looked at a couple of um, suttas in the past, so I will be reusing them for all the different precepts. So the overflowing merit one, which is Anguttara Nikaya 8.39, reminds us, that the precepts are gifts. Don't see them as rules, see them as gifts that we're giving to ourselves, that we're giving to other people. And there is an overflowing that happens that I will be talking about a little bit later. And then uh, in the sutta here, it mentions that if we are keeping the precepts, we are giving countless sentient beings the gift of freedom from fear, enmity, and ill will. That's basically what we've been chanting in that uh, chant of universal well-being uh, during the chanting section this morning. Okay, so that's um, that sutta. Then we usually look at the Chunda Sutta to define a little bit what the precept means. So that's Anguttara Nikaya 1076. And if we look at the second precept here, the Buddha says, there are impurities uh, uh, in, uh, by way of the body, and they're threefold. So now we're looking at the second precept. And they, uh, it says here in the translation of Ajahn Sujato, they steal with the intention to commit theft. They take the wealth or belongings of others from village or wilderness. Well, that's a bit of a definition there so but I've already spoken about that there is an intention to steal there it's not just taking something without knowing that it belongs to someone else and then of course the opposite if we want to purify the body in uh, three ways then the second precept here says they give up stealing they don't with the intention to commit theft take the wealth uh, or belongings of others from village or wilderness so they don't really give you the opposite here. They just give you the abstaining from stealing. And then the third sutta that I usually use is the results of misconduct. That's Anguttara Nikaya 840. Uh, and there it says, stealing when cultivated, developed and practiced. So we can cultivate, develop and practice positive things, but we can also cultivate, develop and practice negative things. So it's all a habit that we are forming. And if we are forming the habit of stealing, deceiving and taking things, 
that leads to lower realms that leads to a um, bad destination basically and if it doesn't it says here the minimum result it leads to for a human being is rivalry and enmity okay good so that's just to give you a bit of sutta references there usually i try to um, have like two words that describe the two domains the domain of the unwholesome way of looking at it and the domain of wholesome of the wholesome way of looking at it and the words i chose for the second precept is scarcity versus abundance what does that exactly mean so scarcity means we are seeing the world with a mindset of lack we are seeing the world with a mindset of wanting and of expectations so i'll be going into detail um, a little bit later and the opposite of that is abundance and abundance means that we are seeing the world with a mindset of appreciation of contentment of inspiration and of aspiration so the opposite there um, which was pointed out by um, joseph goldstein when I listened to him um, in the past, which is very nice. So expectation is you are demanding, you want to have something in a certain way. So it doesn't mean if you are a Buddhist, if you are a spiritual person, that you just stop all this and just kind of go like, oh, everything is fine. We accept whatever uh, the situation is, but it doesn't mean we are not able to change things. So we have an inspiration. We are inspired to do the right things, to do the virtuous things. And we have an aspiration to become better human beings, to create a better world. So that is kind of the difference there between an expectation and an inspiration and an aspiration. So if we look at the negative spiral here to explain why people would be falling into wanting to take things that are not given, wanting to deprive beings of things. So for me, when I kind of try to think back to the root of it, it all comes down to unrealistic expectations. So the word unrealistic, I think, is very important there. So we are having expectations and because they're unrealistic, it's quite clear that um, they will be disappointed <laughs> because they are unrealistic. And that's also one way of Ajahn Brahm to explain suffering, to explain dukkha. He says it's asking from the world what it can never give you basically having unrealistic expectations and that basically means that we have an attachment to a certain outcome and we are being demand demanding we think the world other people um, our surroundings our own body our mind <clears throat> whatever it might be should be in a certain way and if we have that mindset of scarcity then we are prone to have a fault-finding mind, to develop negativity, to start complaining and moaning and groaning, <laughs> and to be reactive to whatever happens, we start to have a reaction to it. So last time with the first precept, we more talked about the 
anger kind of spiral, the not liking, the uh, not wanting it in a certain way. But now we are more focusing on the greed side of things and on the wanting of things. So that is the reactivity that comes out of this cycle. And that, of course, is based in lack, in scarcity. And lack scarcity basically means not dot 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 enough. Whatever that might mean for you, not smart enough, not good enough, not uh, beautiful enough, not um, sunny enough, not, I don't know, COVID-free enough, not whatever it might be, you know, you can put put um, uh, whatever your kind of um, choice is at the time in there where those dots are. And if we have that kind of world view, if we see the world through the lens um, of lack, then we are again prone to um, try and get things. <laughs> or before we even get them, we have this feeling of emptiness. And there is this beautiful term that has been coined, I don't know how long ago, but uh, it's, it's pretty common these days, I think, if, if I talk about FOMO, I think most of the people know what that means. FOMO stands for fear of missing out. And that's, of course, the idea of, you know, also social media and advertisement and all these kind of things. You're sitting at home and you're watching what supposedly all the other people are doing and what supposedly awesome lives they all have. And you kind of just feel so small and insignificant and yes you basically fear that you are missing out that you're not at that party that you're not at that holiday that you're not have you know that you don't have these clothes that you don't have these friends that you don't have these whatever it is please fill in the blank there um yourself and if we kind of have that attitude what very often happens is we go out there and we start running around and we start overstimulating ourselves. So in this day and age, we have so much at our fingertips. Even though you might be sitting at home, not being able to go out, we have so many means to kind of get whatever we want. <laughs> and to overstimulate ourselves. So we have to be careful because if we do that, what happens is the greed grows. The kind of idea of trying to hoard things grows as well. So this has to do with fear as well, with lack. You think, oh, I don't have enough. Oh, just in case, go and get a little bit more. And you get this kind of drivenness um, that basically propels you around this, this world without being able to, to rest, without being able to have a moment of peace once you get kind of caught up in this negative spiral there. And then, of course, when that happens, the drivenness, the overstimulation, you have lack of energy, you have lack of power, you have boredom, and you have dullness because you're so overstimulated that you have to keep stimulating yourself so you're, you know, excited enough. And if you're not, it's just kind of like, Ugh. all the kind of energy is, is, is gone. And the problematic of that kind of vicious cycle there is that it can lead into addiction and into dependence. 
And then of course we start the whole thing and go round and round and round. We have more unrealistic expectations, we have more attachments, we have more fault finding, rah 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 rah. And it just goes round and round and round and round. <laughs> so that is that kind of negative cycle that we can get caught in. But I like to reflect on uh, a teaching that the Buddha has given about gratification, danger, and escape to deal exactly with that. So I've uh, given talks before where we used this framework uh, at the BSV. I think it was maybe two years ago, or maybe last year, I'm not sure anymore, where we talked about this when we were angry, how we can deal with that. But this time I would like to zero in, zoom in, focus on the desire and on greed, on this idea of wanting more and more and more and not being satisfied. So these three things, I haven't got uh, a sutta here, but um, if you Google it, gratification, danger, escape, in Pali it's asada, adinava and nisarana. Nisarano is uh, Ajahn Nisarano, he is the escapee. <laughs> He's escaping from samsara into Nibbana. So that's the escape there. So uh, just a little bit of explanation. So the gratification means the pleasure, the sweetness that we fall for. And the picture that I usually use when I have slides is like a little dessert or something, a cupcake or whatever, whatever you might fancy, a chocolate cake or I don't know. Anyway, whatever you like, chocolate, uh, chips or <laughs> anything really. And there is a gratification, there is a certain sweetness. So the Buddha doesn't deny that things are pleasurable, but he tells us, please be careful, there is a danger and there is a problem, there are drawbacks. So we have to be aware of those ones as well. So that's the first step of moving out from an unwholesome mind state, from an unwholesome habit, to realize there is dangers, to realize it's actually not doing us and other people good. And then there is the escape. And the escape is the way out, it's the antidote, and it's the cure. And I usually try to reflect about virtues and see which virtues would be the virtues that get me or someone else out of such a situation. So let's look at this in a little bit more detail. So when uh, I talk about gratification, I have a few questions I usually try to ask myself. So what feels good about this thing? What does it promise you? And why do we or why do you fall for this behavior? And there might be a few explanations here that comes from quite a bit of experience um, doing a few retreats online as well, collecting ideas online, collecting my own ideas, collecting ideas from other people. So basically we feel tempor temporarily comforted and soothed by a, an experience. So we get a little blip or we get a burst of energy, we get a burst of excitement and of pleasure. So the Buddha said, yes, that is true, but it is very short-lived. So we are temporarily relieved from the build-up tension, from pressure, from whatever we might be under. So very often people who are addicted are saying, I'm just trying to have a break from all this pain. I'm just trying to, to get away. I just don't want to feel um, what I have to feel otherwise. That's why I'm using certain substances to get rid of that. Then it also is uh, can take the edge off of a certain um, uh, situation. It can distract us from the real problem and that feels pleasurable for that short period of time. 
uh, and it can kind of get us away from what we might describe the boredom of the daily drag. But if we were mindful, if our minds were in a happy place, boredom would never arise in the first place. Because if you have a happy, um, clear, calm mind, a beautiful mind sees a beautiful world. <laughs> and then all these things are not really um, required anymore. And of course, these things in advertisement and in social media and what I was saying in the movies, they're promising, if I get this thing, then I will be happy. And we kind of fall for that. And with social media, I found the simile or the kind of how they compared it very, very helpful. So if we watch a movie from Hollywood or Bollywood or wherever they're made these days on YouTube, <laughs> and it's kind of showing us this utopia world, we can very easily get sucked into that. But we can realize, oh, this is just a movie. These are just actors. It's actually the same thing in social media. Please look at it in this way as well. In a movie, you you know, you have a script and you just put in what the director wants to put in. And social media very often is the same way. And it's like a movie. So just be aware, a lot of it is acting. A lot of it is not real. I am very heartened and I'm very, very happy that people are posting their real lives as well, posting about their problems. And that is really good. That helps other people to not feel alone, to be able to reach out and to connect with each other in a real way. But if it's something you are creating, something you are chore choreo choreographing, <laughs> you know what I mean, <laughs> making a choreograph, anyway, I can't say it, um, out of it, like in a movie, um, please uh, be aware of that when you are going on uh, some of those social media pages. Or, I mean, you, you know, even here, we're doing some of the videos. And I remember one of the members here was saying in the past, you know, these videos, oh, they're just so beautiful. And it makes it look all just, just, you know, fl uh, flowers and happiness all the time. And uh, that's not life. I mean, you are putting it together in a way to convey that and to inspire people um, to to reach this calm, happy place in themselves. But of course, <laughs> it takes a long time to cut it in the right way, to make sure it, it, it's, it's playing well with the music, the emotions are aroused in the right way. So it, 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 is, it is all made. And in uh, social media, they actually call this phenomenon, 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 whatever, <laughs> my language today, flexing. It's like you're flexing your muscles. But you are showing, like, you're, you're like flexing your muscles, but making them look bigger <laughs> from the behind there. And there was actually this one incident I heard about in the States where, um, you know, you have these, these gangs that do things online as well. And you have some of the people who just want to be cool. And they go on social media, they show themselves with guns and drugs and ladies or whatever it might be, you know. And one of those young kids actually got shot because the image he had online made the people believe that he is really part of a gang and he's really, you know, part of the whole thing, which, uh, which wasn't the case. So he was so successful in creating a, a social media image that wasn't himself that was able to, call, uh, to catch up with him, um, which was very sad. 
Okay, I have a poem here that I would like to read out in English for, uh, sorry, in German first, because it was written in German. It's from Wilhelm Busch, uh, and it's from Sein, no, Schein und Sein. Niemals. Wonach du sehnlichst ausgeschaut, es wurde dir beschieden. Du triumphierst und jubelst laut, jetzt habe ich endlich Frieden. Ach, Freundchen, red nicht so wild, bezähme deine Zunge. Ein jeder Wunsch, wenn er erfüllt, kriegt augenblicklich Junge. That was actually one little poem that I recited when I was acting uh, at the uh, teacher training school. So that's kind of a kept... It's still, it was still in my mind. So the translation for you in English, I'll try to um, translate it as well as I can. So it's from Wilhelm Busch and the book it comes out, uh, out from is called Appearance and Reality. And the title of the poem is Never. What you looked and longed for so dearly, it has been bestowed upon you. You triumph and rejoice aloud. Now I finally have peace. Watch it, my friend. Do not talk so wild. Tame your tongue. Every wish, once fulfilled, immediately begets another, or instantly bears offspring. So these wishes, these desires, are uh, insatiable, I think the word is. Right, so... What often happens as well is, though, that we have one experience that kind of comes uh, without, uh, without us expecting it. And that's how our reward system works. So if you have people who, for, for example, get all caught up in gambling, it usually starts very innocently. They go to a venue, they do uh, go to a casino or whatever it is. They play the game. And then unexpectedly, they win quite a big amount of money. Or even though if it might not be such a big amount, still, they want to win a bit of money and they get really excited. And that kind of lodges in the brain. And what happens then is every time they go past the casino or there is those certain cues that arise, they have this anticipation that starts to grow in them and that dopamine starts to kick in even before you engage in a certain um, behavior. Even though what has happened and what was pleasurable might have happened a long, long, long time ago, we are actually still chasing after it these days. And we are still carrying on in a behavior that after time becomes unwholesome. So let's be very, very present and very mindful if we do behave in a certain way that we know to be unwholesome, that we have learned over time that it might have been pleasurable in the past, but it actually has problems and drawbacks. So whenever you go for a certain um, pleasure, for a certain desire, make sure you feel how it actually feels inside. How does it really feel inside? not what you're thinking about it or what you're anticipating about it, and then what is your state of mind like. And that will kind of lead you from the gratification to the understanding of what the dangers are. So you have to find out if it is really as rewarding as it seems. So I have um, two examples here. One of them was when I was staying at Amarawati Monastery in 2009-10, I stayed there as a layperson for the winter retreat. 
And um, during the same time, I got an email that I was invited to um, help another family that I worked with before. They had a brain uh, damaged child and they invited me to go with them to a dolphin therapy session and to help with that in Turkey. And I started to be excited and happy about that. But because I was in an environment of retreat and of quietness and calm, I started to realize that there is a big difference between excitement and between joy and peace. So this excitement actually, if I really felt deep in my, into my heart, was kind of irritating, felt a bit jarring. It was kind of like, ugh. It wasn't as pleasant as you might have thought when you're talking about excitement. So that way you can kind of start to navigate from the more coarser feelings of excitement, of that kind of happiness that we're talking about there, and the joy and the peace um, in contrast to that. Then another thing that I wanted to mention is the drivenness that I talked about. I was uh, on a personal re retreat recently, and I did slow down while I was eating, or I even stopped while I was eating. So I encourage you to do that as a practice as well, to see if there is a drivenness in you to take the next bite or to swallow the next bite and get the next bite. <laughs> so I, I would be putting the food in my mouth, but just leaving it right there <laughs> or have it in my mouth and stop for a, a short period of while, a shorter period and see what is happening in me emotionally, uh, what kind of feelings are present. And that started in 2008 when I met Ajahn Brahm in Frankfurt. I was in a Zen monastery there and during the meal they would ring the bell and whenever the bell was rang you had to stop exactly what you were doing and wait for, I don't know, half a minute and then they would ring the bell and you would carry on with the eating process. And I do remember how difficult that was. I had food in my mouth and I, it felt so unpleasant to have that food in my mouth and to be interrupted in this driven process of eating. So please, maybe have, uh, have uh, your partner or your ch children uh, ring the bell so you don't know when it's happening or have like on your phone, you can have these kind of reminders at a certain time of the day. <laughs> and when it goes off, just stop for half a minute and see how unpleasant it actually feels. So, we are relating to craving and we're looking at the danger now. So we've moved from the gratification to the danger. What feels bad about it? Where does the problem lie? What are the drawbacks? And what are the uh, adverse consequences? So the Buddha says in uh, Diganikaya 31, this is specific to drinking alcohol, but I think it um, applies to many other um, things as well. Loss of wealth. If we start getting um, you know, addicted or using something way too much or enjoying ourselves way too much, we lose all our money. <laughs> we um, have the promotion of quarrels. If there are resources that a lot of people are interested in, they start fighting, they start squabbling, they start quarreling over it. Then there is the susceptib susceptibility to illness. If we don't have a healthy balance, Illness is just around the corner. Then there is disrepute with your friends and your um, loved ones. You kind of start to lose that connection. 
than there is, they say, especially with drugs and alcohol here, indecent exposure. You do things you wouldn't really do and you don't really remember them often and then they tell you the next day and you go like, oh my goodness, oh, so embarrassing, I've done that <laughs> when I was under the influence. And then the other one and the most important one here, it weakens wisdom. So we can't have a clear, calm mind. Then these substances can be used for numbing. So um, it's not really sustaining. It's just uh, not nourishing. It's this blip that I talked about. It's like the sugar high that lasts for a little while, but then runs out. It is like running and keep uh, and the need to keep running. So the, the example there is uh, one monk, Adamrawati, said he was at Swan Mok, that's uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa's monastery in Thailand. And when you walk away from the retreat center, there was apparently a sign. And on the sign it said, you can run, but you can't hide. And that's what happens with craving. So we are getting caught up in this cycle of following the craving, following the craving, following the craving. But we can't hide. We can't stop. The only thing we can do is carry on and on and on and on and on, on, but it leads us further and further away from peace, from clarity, from happiness. Then also with addictions, the dose needs to be um, steadily increased. So our system gets used to something and we start to fall into it more and more and more. And our system needs a higher level, like with painkillers or whatever it, it is. You have a certain threshold and you have to keep moving that so that the body has the right um, response uh, for that. And then with medication, sometimes it's good to go off the medication and put it back on so you can that, that that doesn't happen that much so with addiction and dependence of course there is the loss of control and the loss of agency and then most importantly the crash the hangover so when the thrill is gone we feel empty we feel depleted so, one simile that I found very, very nice that goes back to my mm, primary school years or maybe middle mm, or teacher training college. I can't teacher training college most likely. So we had someone who came to talk about addictions and he described how addicted people are starting to think about the substance all the time, more and more and more and more. They're thinking about when they can get the next hit, how they can get it, who they can get it from. And they were describing it like you have this huge piano, which is your whole life, that is at your disposal. But once you're starting to be addicted, you focus in very, very narrowly. And what happens if it gets very, very strong, you end up playing just two notes over and over and over again. So that is the danger. There is a nice um, cartoon uh, from Lunik, uh, which shows this relationship. You know, we often think, oh, we are the master and our drug of choice or our desire is our slave and it gives us happiness. But then the relationship turns <laughs> and the master becomes the desire and we become the slave. So he has this joke with a man looking down, or um, one of his figures there, looking down at a table at a device, and the device is saying to him, I am not your device, you are my device. <laughs> so the relationship turns. A quote from Ajahn Brahm, which fits in here. 
He says, it's beautiful in the beginning, but it's really awful in the middle and it kills you at the end. <laughs> and for the people who know the Dhamma, who know the scriptures well, will know that there is another saying in the suttas. Uh, I think it uh, appears quite frequently and it says, the Dhamma, the teaching, the way, the truth is beautiful in the beginning, beautiful in the middle and beautiful in the end. And another quote from Ajahn Chah, he used to say, if you have an itch on your head, don't scratch your bottom. And why don't you do that? Because if you do that, you end up with two sore spots. But that's what we very often do. We try to cover up something with our desires. That's the itch. The problem is actually up on our head. But we are trying to solve it by creating another problem on our bottom. So that is another of those dangers. So Ajahn Brahm talks about the freedom of desire versus the freedom from desire. So the freedom of desire is I can do whatever I want whenever I want. And the freedom from desire is when we let go of the desire itself. So what we actually enjoy, if you look very closely, is the cessation of desire. The disappearing of craving, the disappearing of pressure, friction, agitation, and disease. So Ayakema used to suggest just drop the desire itself. Even if it's just for a moment. Try it. If you're getting into this drivenness and you're realizing it, there is enough mindfulness, just try and close your eyes, get a bit of a distance, calm down, and drop the desire itself. See if you can do that and then see what that leads to. So that is called renunciation and that is what the escape is all about. So we are not avoiding things or pushing them away. We are escaping through acceptance, understanding and letting go. All right, look at that in a little bit more detail. Sorry, I have quite a lot of material today, but I hope it is useful. So what is the escape? How can we get away? How can we overcome, abandon those unwholesome states? And what are the antidotes and the cure? So we have a balance, we have moderation, we renounce, we are simple, we have gratitude, contentment and peace. I'll be explaining those a little bit more uh, later. So we take a little holiday every now and then. So we don't get too stuck in whatever we are doing. As I said, just step back, be playful, have humor, relax, do sports, yoga, meditation, nature, whatever it is. But do it with mindfulness. Do it in a mindful and wholesome way. Another good thing you can do is connect with other people. I know it's the pandemic now, but you still have people around you, most likely, your family, your community, or even online. So do connect with animals and with human beings. Animals, I don't know in town how many you have, but here there's plenty. There was just another wombat, uh, no, not a wombat, a wallaby this morning. And Ajahn Chittapala just walked right past it and it was just kind of looking at him and then put his head down again and started mun munching the grass. They are usually quite afraid, the, the wallabies. They're not that used to us yet. The kangaroos, they come in big mobs and they're kind of used to us, most of them. But the wallabies, they are much more scared. And then serve, give, and through serving and giving, find meaning and purpose in life. And then, importantly, understand and address the underlying problems. And if you need help from a friend or a professor, professional, 
please reach out and get the help you need. Right, so let's maybe skip over those ones. So let's have a bit of a closer look what this whole contentment business means. It basically means counting your blessings. So in German we have this beautiful saying which goes Mach es wie die Sonne nur, zähl die heiteren Stunden nur. And that means in English do it like the sundial, count the bright hours only. So when the clouds are up, when there is no sun, the sundial doesn't work. It doesn't register the clouds, it doesn't register the time when the clouds are up. But as soon as the sun comes out, it starts counting the hours again. So that's basically what we could be doing. So we encourage you to recognize, to appreciate, to savor and to treasure the beautiful things in life. How do we do that? We do that through appreciation, through gratitude and through thankfulness. So what is very important, of course, is if you want to count your blessings, you first have to find the blessings. So you have to be open enough, you have to be happy enough, you have to be inspired enough, or you have to have enough good people around you that can kind of put these things into your mind every now and then. And when that happens, it's like a fountain. I usually imagine this fountain which has those three levels I'm sure you've seen them in some cities. You have these vessels that start to fill up. So you have the fountain at the top and it goes in the first vessel, second vessel, third vessel. And that's the overflowing. So if there is enough appreciation, if you let yourself be filled up with appreciation, it overflows into gratitude. And then the gratitude overflows into the thankfulness. So appreciation is seeing the good, valuing the good. Gratitude is having this attitude, this feeling of gratitude within yourself and then the only way to really um, give justice to that once it starts overflowing is to carry it out into the world and to actually be thankful to thank other people for their presence to thank uh, whatever your body your mind <laughs> for doing all these beautiful things acknowledging that so the positive cycle of things is appreciation and aspiration, that's what it starts with. So we are receptive and we recognize the value of things. Then appreciation, gratitude, thankfulness, that's kind of this trio that I usually think about. And once that has happened, once that starts to overflow out of you, then you have this mindset of abundance. If you are grateful, if you are thankful, you feel you have more than enough and you want to share, you feel blessed and you want to share those blessings with other beings, with the world. And that's when abundance starts to overflow into generosity, into instead of taking what is not given, giving what is not asked for. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean it in a way, <laughs> give people grief, but give people something beautiful that they haven't even asked for, inspire them. And then that leads deeper and deeper in the meditative path to contentment, to renunciation. You're so happy, you don't want anything in the world, as Ajahn Brahm says. You don't want to be anywhere else on this planet. You're just so happy and so joyful, so peaceful, so content. And contentment in German is 
Zufriedenheit. And if you translate the word Zufriedenheit, it actually means towards peace. So contentment is what leads you towards peace, towards a deep joy, to stillness, and to simplicity. The contented, the renunciants are the people who don't need many things in this world. And it doesn't have to be monastics, you know. I had um, one person who was uh, leading the boarding school um, that I was at for the teacher training college. And he was a very simple person. And I was very impressed even as a teenager, or maybe as, a, as an adolescent at that time, when uh, uh, I kind of, you know, I was invited to his home at one time and he had his washing up and he had like the same clothes over and over again. <laughs> and he explained to us, you know, when I go shopping and I like a shirt, I, I buy three. Why go and buy, you know, six of this and, uh, or, or buy a huge variety? And that's what reminds me of being a monastic. You know, this is, this is my dress. I have one of this and that's it. I have a double Sangati when I wash this, but it, it's so thin, so it dries. So I don't stand in front of my mirror and my cupboard in the morning go like, hmm, what shall I wear today? <laughs> it's easy. And for him, it was kind of similar. He was like, okay, I saw this shirt. It was nice. And I said, okay, get three. <laughs> so he would, whenever it was ready for washing, he puts it in the washing and he puts another one on. So that's kind of the the, the story. It's um, uh, same guy. No, what is it? Same shirt, different guy. No, what was it? Same shirt, same guy. Oh, anyway, <laughs> so... He was just having the same clothes. And that joy, that peace, that simplicity will lead to freedom. And that's what we are really after, to letting go. And freedom, I couldn't resist to mention here, freedom also means dropping other things that might be bothering us, like forgiving. Giving or forgiving is also a part of giving. I, I give, I've given a talk about this before and I'm not going to go into detail here now, but do think about it. If you forgive someone, you're also unburdening yourself. So forgiveness is part of this uh, positive cycle. And then of course it goes into appreciation, aspiration, and round and round and round and round. We go in this um, positive cycle. So the road to forgiveness, if you think about it, usually if something goes wrong, someone has done something we didn't like, sometimes we hold on to that one thing and we hold it against them no matter what and we're not willing to forget it. Now, imagine you would do the opposite. How about holding something for someone? <laughs> so if someone has done something really nice, please hold on to it in that way and remember it and don't forget it and then that will be in your mind and that will be the lens you are seeing that person through so if you can't forgive someone please please use meta and that's what meta is doing you see the positive aspects of that person and you focus on those ones and it balances it out it doesn't mean the negative thing goes away it doesn't mean you're agreeing with the negative thing but you are having a broader, bigger picture of the situation there. Right, contentment, a little quote that I found in the Theragata that I was reading. It's in Tala Putta 19.1 and it's verse 1110. And it says, contented 
like a poor person in debt harassed by creditors who finds a hidden treasure. So sensual desire is open uh, is often described as a debt debt. And here you have this drivenness. You have the creditors who are harassing you. You have the society. You have the advertisements that are going like, oh, oh buy me. You need me. <laughs> Without me, you won't be happy. And then you find this hidden treasure. So it takes a little bit of uncovering, a little bit of going deeper. But that hidden treasure, that is contentment. And it is so important Renunciation and contentment are two very, very important things on the spiritual path. And that also works with meditation. Maybe tomorrow we'll be able to go into this a little bit more with the meditation, the guided meditation. Basically, when you are discontented, your mind is full of thoughts. There's lots of thoughts, there's lots of complaining, there's lots of rah, 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 nagging going on in your mind. But if you are able to replace that with contentment, you will realize, you will see, you will experience that there will be less and less and less thinking. Because you are so contented. Why would you go anywhere else? Why would you think? Why would you have the mind move outwards? So it naturally, naturally just comes back, falls back into yourself instead of moving out. Good, okay, let's do the reflection as we did uh, for the other one to get a feeling of this precept and to um, sum up what I was talking about. <clears throat> so please um, get in a comfortable position. Take a few deep breaths. Relax your body and mind as much as you can. Unburden yourself. So you have a bit of room for reflection to get in touch with the positive aspect of the second precept it's a little bit like trying on a mind state so when you go to the shop you try on different shoes and different clothings and see oh yeah does it look good on me does it fit and now let's do the same thing with a mind state so remember a time when you received a genuine gift or when you were offered things, time and space freely and generously by another person in your life. Long, long time ago or just recently. Think about when you were, or when your things, sorry, were appreciated, they were respected, and they were cared for. They were treated in the right manner. You weren't exploited and your things were taken care of. Or you might also think of a mistake you made, but of someone who was graciously offering you their forgiveness and giving you another chance starting afresh. These are all examples of generosity and contentment that was shown towards you so you can get in touch with how that actually feels. 
if you look at it from the perspective of you uh, giving something. So think of an occasion when you were grateful, when you were thankful and generous. You appreciated, respected, and cared for other people's belongings. Very deeply. And you showed that somehow to the other person. Or as well, if someone's made a mistake, something went wrong, and you offered them generously and freely your forgiveness. Think of a time where you were deeply contented and peaceful. And then taking it to the highest level, imagine you are the Buddha, or you are a spiritually highly developed being, and you are full of generosity, of respect, of care, of forgiveness, and of deep peace. You are truly freed from all craving, wanting, or wishing. You're still, but you're charged up with an overflowing of beautiful, pure, and kind energy. How does that feel? How does it feel for people who are around you? How do they perceive you? How do they view you? Okay, so we can gently open our eyes again. And I have just a few more remarks because we are in Melbourne in Corona times still to maybe give you a little bit of input and a little bit of encouragement. So one of the quotes Ajahn Brahm has that fits in here is, if you want more, you cannot enjoy what you already have. So that is gratitude and contentment. But please also reflect on what you luckily don't have. Apparently, it's Venable Thich Nhat Hanh who said, imagine you wake up one morning with a non-toothache. <laughs> so if we wake up with a toothache, we're not, not happy. But if we wake up with a non-toothache, we are grateful that we don't have something. So we are not living in poverty, hopefully. We are not homeless. Or we might not have had coronavirus. Please reflect on that. Or if we do have it, 
that we have a system that can cope with it as well as possible, that we are able to get through it. And that reminded me of a quote I used in the BSWA from Professor Frank Bowden, who is from the infectious disease, no, he is an infectious disease physician from the Australian National University of Medical School, and he was part of the Ebola outbreak. And the quote he used back then, and which I feel is very timely now, goes as, as follows. No one thanks you when you prevent something. They thank you when they've got out of the intensive care. But when you've prevented something, they didn't even know you did it. And so this is the thing we have to embed in our teaching and in our culture. So please think of all the people who are doing so much hard work to prevent something even worse happening. Right. And for the people who might be feeling a bit down and kind of, I'm stuck at home and what shall I do? I feel so bad about myself. If you are feeling down, worthless, and you think you are good for nothing, do good for nothing, also known as generosity, service, or selflessness. So get uplifted by the energy and the happiness it creates and boost your sense of meaning and of worth. Hopefully, problem solved. <laughs> and even if you say, I don't have access to people, most likely you'll have access to your family. You can call, you can drop a, a nice email. So practice the right being good for nothing. And a quote from the Dhammapada, verse 204, which kind of makes a bridge between what we've talking, talked about. Health is the most precious gain. So please be aware. And contentment is the greatest wealth. A trustworthy person is the best kingsman. Nibbana, the highest bliss. Okay, I hope this input was useful. I know it's, it's quite, a <laughs> quite a load, but uh, you can always re-listen to it or maybe take notes and and try to use these things, try to use gratification, danger, escape, um, when those desires come up to be able to escape from the unwholesome things and develop the wholesome things. Okay, we better do a few questions if there are any, because it's almost lunchtime, so you have to be quick. <laughs> Thank you, Bante. Yes, we have received several questions Oh, the Q&A session. Uh, several or seven? Several. Several, okay. <laughs> First question. Okay. Dear Bhante, would you mind briefly explain the path to Nibbana? <laughs> briefly. Just let go. <laughs> Ajahn Chah had this quote, um, if I can think of it. If you let go a little bit, you get a little bit of peace. If you let go a lot, you get a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you get complete peace and that's nibbana in a nutshell <laughs> that was quickly yes next one <laughs> next question could you speak about what would be the proper behavior mm -hmm. when confronted with aggressive behavior from others Ooh. i know this is not related to the topic today mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. your wisdom is appreciated in this matter <laughs> 
Ah, yes. I mean, it's it's very hard to um, know what the person is, uh, the, the situation the person is in, and that is really kind of uh, the important part. You know, if it is domestic violence, for example, which is very, very difficult because um, people can be very manipulative in that um, kind of framework. But there is help available out there, and please um, do get in contact with um, those um, organizations that have experience with this. Um, it is basically upholding respects as well. It's kind of showing that you are giving respect to another person, but that you're also expecting, there you can have an expectation, for them to respect you back in return. And if that doesn't happen, please don't be disappointed, because that's what expectation can kind of lead to. So you have the aspiration of having respect from a person back towards you as well. But if that doesn't work, you have to have clear boundaries. And you have to basically tell the person, if you behave in this manner, not say you're, I don't know, swear at them and say you are this and you are that, and <laughs> you're a violent person, but tell them if you are showing this violent um, behavior towards me, that has consequences. And my consequences are this, 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 and this. And I am not willing to tolerate certain behavior um, towards me or towards anyone else. And very often it's also the relationship, you know. I'm, I'm just thinking about domestic violence at the moment because it kind of got into my mind. And someone mentioned rightly, in domestic violence, people think they can get away with it. They think, oh, you know, it's it's just my partner. Of course, it's completely wrong, but that's their kind of way of thinking. But if you can make them understand, if this would have happened in a workplace, it would be very clear. There would be rules. Um, then you would um, have, you know, maybe three strikes, or if it's too too bad, you're out. And that should apply to every relationship, not just to an organization or to a workplace. So establish those rules, establish those boundaries. If you can't establish them yourselves, please get help to have another person to establish them with you or bring a third person into the situation to um, diffuse it and to have a healthy discussion. Often it's important to walk away because it's too heated, it's too difficult, it's um, people are too, you know, consumed by whatever is happening. So get out of the situation, get yourself into safety, and then approach the person when it is safe, when they have calmed down, and tell them how you're experiencing it, how you're feeling about it, and basically what needs you have, and how you would wish that relationship to develop. And if it doesn't, you'll have to pull back, and there will be consequences. Hope that is helpful. It's a bit hard for me because I'm stabbing in the dark. <laughs> Next question. Mm -hmm. Would using resources in a lavish way be considered a violation of the second precept? <laughs> for example, using air conditioners and heaters a lot or using the dryer instead of hanging the clothes out. Right, right. Yes. So it's with all the other precepts, there are reflections and everyone has to do that reflection for themselves and everyone has to kind of draw the line in a different place. But hopefully we are moving that line closer and closer towards the aspiration we have, towards the kind of precept that we uphold at a very high level. So um, 
Yeah, I can't answer that for you, but uh, it's good. Uh, you're asking this question, which means you're already reflecting on it, which is beautiful. And then try to do whatever you can. You know, we have a dryer here. We do use it when it's really rainy. Um, with this kind of cloth, as I said, I hang it up and in a couple of hours inside it dries without a dryer. So, so find the right balance there. Find what um, is, is okay in your surroundings. But please do as much as you can, you know, take care of the planet. Take care of other beings. So every time we are, so to speak, getting away with something, we're usually getting away with something uh, and the cost is put on someone else. And very often the cost is put on people who are disadvantaged or is put on on the land, <laughs> which can't, you know, uh, do anything. <laughs> the Buddha said usually the land is kind of the, uh, it's, it's like the simile for equanimity. Whatever you put on the land, even if you pee on it or defecate on it or spit on it, it it's just going to... Um, stay equanimous so we have to be the custodians we have to step into that role to protect some of those um, properties and some of those things so please do whatever you can um, be creative and keep moving in the right direction i think that's what i would offer hmm? how do you suggest one should act if some individual in a family lack to respect your space or way of living. Uh -huh. Thank you. Yes. Yes, so I think I already hopefully answered that a little bit. And uh, as an example, I was a primary school teacher for a year and respect was very important to me. Um, the respect that I would give the children, the respect that I would give the parents. And uh, one of the people actually remarked, <laughs> now that I'm thinking about it, they came up to me one day and said, oh, you're a good teacher. And I said, how do you know? <laughs> and she said, I've been observing you. And the primary school kids, they're, they're much um, smaller than me, of course. I'm a lot taller. And for me, it was just normal to go down at their level when I would speak with them. So she would see me outside the classroom when the kids would take their shoes and their jackets and go back home. And I just didn't want to talk down on people. So I would always go down basically squat down, be on the same level, and then talk to the child in this way. And that's basically what respect is. So show respect to the other person so they know how it feels like. And then please um, encourage them to show you the same thing back. And that was the kind of aspiration I had as a teacher. So when the kids would come and tell me, my parents or at home, we do things in this way, I would try as hard as I could to not go and talk down on the parents either and say, oh no, this is bad and this is, you shouldn't be doing it this way. Your parents see it completely the wrong way. Because what happens then is they will be doing the same thing about the teacher. They say, oh, what, do you, what does he think? What does he know about teaching? You know, oh, what is he doing? So I was trying to have the respect towards them. And even though sometimes I might have felt something wasn't as skillful, I would try to just kind of steer it in a direction where I would encourage the other person to themselves and reflect on it or to themselves develop a wholesome behavior, but never attack the other person, never attack the other um, organization or whatever it is, if you don't have to. Of course, there are situations where you have to, you know, 
show what, what is not working, but do it in a respectful manner. So if you give respect, I think respect will come back. Sometimes you have to be patient and wait for a while. But uh, for me, um, with my parents, or the parents of my children, I had 17 kids in the classroom on that, in that rural school. Um, I think I had a very good relationship with them for that year. And uh, what helped was the respect that we had um, for each other. Next question. What advice would you give for someone wanting to reach out to someone who has a problem such as drinking or gambling? Mm. Um, very often what happens is these people get caught up or, you know, anybody who gets into addiction gets caught up in that behavior because they don't feel safe, because they have problems they can't deal with. Uh, and with gambling, what I've heard, uh, when you read uh, those gambling venues, they're open all the time. And they, um, uh, in the beginning, they are a safe refuge for those people. They feel like I can go there anytime. People are kind and generous with me. They are friendly. And then at the side, they get caught up with gambling and off it goes. <laughs> so if you can provide that safe space, if you can provide that understanding to the person, then it's very likely that they will start reflecting why they do the behavior that is not really helping them. When they have another oasis, when they have another place of refuge where they can go to. So it also reminds me of this one case in Western Australia of a lady who would come to the Buddhist Society of Victoria, uh, Buddhist Society of Western Australia for the Friday night talk. And as soon as she would get there, she would right lie down and start sleeping and snoring. And people started explain, uh, started um, complaining about it. And when Arjun Brahm found out what was actually happening is this lady was um, unfortunately um, suffering from uh, domestic violence. And that was the only place she could go to. And it's the only place where she felt she could really relax and let go and go to sleep because she was so stressed out. So that is a good example. So she went into this space and then this space allowed her to when she got over her sleep deprivation to pick up a little bit of Dhamma, a little bit of wisdom to get in contact with good people and to slowly, slowly move out uh, of this um, unhelpful uh, situation. Um, with alcohol, I don't know, that's a bit difficult, but with gambling, there are um, um, agreements you can make. Once the person realizes there is a problem, they can um, ask venues to remove uh, him or her uh, so they can't go and spend money there because, as I described before, often there is a temptation and because the habit is established, you just need a cue and if there isn't enough happiness and mindfulness uh, there, it will drag you down that path again. So uh, there will be relapses most of the time. But there is help out there. Uh, I think it was Relationship Australia is one of the organizations that helps with gambling. I'm sure if you, if you um, uh, look it up online. And with alcohol also, there are so many very, very nice um, examples online where people are reaching out to other people. One of the problems there is that people are afraid that um, they are going to get recognized, especially if it's in a rural area and everyone is going to know that they have a problem with alcohol. So um, there is online forums, there is uh, counseling over the phone and all these kind of things where you can be anonymous and then at a certain time you uh, feel confident enough to 
speak about your own experience. And once people have pulled through, the best way I feel for them to stay at the point they're at is to become mentors for other people and to help them move in the same direction and that actually keeps them um, sober as well. So yeah, try and find find a group, try and listen to uh, the right teachings, try and hang out with the right people and encourage those people to get into those safe waters with you. Yep, that, that's it. One last question. One last question. Okay, it's almost half past. <laughs> it's going to be lunch soon. Okay, okay go. <laughs> when I'm mindful throughout the day, Will there be concentration and wisdom also along with it? If so, what would that feel like? <laughs> yes, yes, um, it it does it does it does arrive uh, arise together. But it basically it just allows you to have more of it present. Um, one of the similes that Arjun Chah gave is like you have a path with many many leaves. And they're all over the place before it's swept. And that's when there is no mindfulness. That's where there is so much stuff happening. And uh, you're just lost in it. But once you have developed calm, peace, and the mindfulness has arisen with that, you've also developed contentment. And with contentment, um, the thinking process and all that stuff has calmed down as well. So there's less pulling away for you. So what happens is that path that I described before that has many leaves on it, has been swept and it's either completely swept or it's clearer than before and then when one leaf drops you can see it very very clearly so the mindfulness is there and then the wisdom can develop but wisdom is also um, something that you acquire through listening to the Dhamma through listening to um, through people who have walked this path uh, for a long long way or basically listening to the Buddha and that means that wisdom is put into your mind, is put into your heart. And then when there is enough space, and mindfulness is a certain spaciousness that is created, then those two things can come together. Then the wisdom can really work. Because even if you are behaving in a way you shouldn't be, wisdom is still there in the back of your mind. It's still in your system, but it's not accessible. So what mindfulness does, what stillness does, is it makes it accessible. Okay, good. Yes, I think that was the last question. Wonderful, okay. Thank you, Bante. I hope that was helpful. And uh, yes, please, um, um, what, what do you say? <laughs> Keep it up <laughs> for the people with uh, coronavirus problems and lockdowns and things. Do whatever you can. Stay positive and it will pass. We will get through this. Okay, let's pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha now. <laughs>